Well, so glad you're here at Grace Community Church. Uh, my name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. And if this is your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. Uh, if this is your second, third, or 600th time, I want to let you know about a few things going on this week. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a full week. Um, we have a day of fasting and prayer on Wednesday. Now, I am going to be at a conference, so I'm not going to join you in this day of fasting and prayer, but I want to encourage, I mean, I will be praying much, but I will not be fasting at the conference. Uh, I would tell you where I'm going, but you might have me taken away, you know, they're coming to take me away, Uh uh-huh. Okay, it's Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. I think the high on Wednesday while you're fasting and praying will be zero that day in Minneapolis. So, uh, but please be here uh, Wednesday night at 6.30. And if you can, we ask that you fast from Tuesday, after Tuesday dinner, up until after our meeting at 6.30. So uh, be in prayer. Much to pray about, to pray for. Going to be a lot about prayer uh, today that you'll hear, including uh, men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. We, I would love for a number of you to come that don't typically come. Here at the church, 8 o'clock, we'll have breakfast. We need to know if you're coming. You'll be seeing something on the city this week. You'll have a chance to respond, say that you will be here. We are reading a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Um, and it's excellent book to help with prayer. We're doing chapter 6 through 8. You can download it on Kindle, whatever you want to do. But do try to be here on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. Also, uh, on Friday morning at 11, we're having a memorial service for Bill Miller. As I'm sure you know, those of you who knew Bill, he is beyond his pain and suffering now. He is with the Lord. And so we are going to remember him at 11 o'clock Friday morning. I, it, It's the best time that we could work. I know it's inconvenient for some of you, but these services usually are. So do try your best to be here, if at all possible, and um, we will just share about Bill's life and what he meant to us, and also share the gospel. So be here Friday morning, if you're able to, for Bill Miller's service. Uh, The gospel of of Mark. Oh, by the way, before I get into the Gospel of Mark, which is what we're studying right now, uh, I will say we're having a, a, a Super Bowl party at the Tally House tonight, six o'clock. It will be by far the best of all the parties. Uh, you don't have to come to ours. You can go to a loser party if you want to somewhere else. But I'm just kidding, just kidding. Our home group that meets there, the Dunn home group, we're going to all combine. We're going to have two home groups and have a big time tonight. So be there, or another one, if you're looking for a a party in your area, a Super Bowl party, uh, please let me know, and I can point you to the right direction, or see one of the guys that you've seen on the platform, or one of the guys serving this morning in communion, you'll see a number of people that you can ask, hey, we're interested in connecting with a group tonight, where might that be? The Gospel of Mark, if you have been here for any length of time, you know that we are going through the Gospel of Mark. Possibly, this is the the, the shortest of the four Gospels, and possibly it should be named something else. It's packed with information, it's packed with life, and it's packed with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So it, it could be titled, because of Peter's influence on Mark's life, in his hand in this Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, uh, according to Mark, as it is titled in your Bible, the gospel according to Peter as reported to Mark, or maybe even more accurately, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Peter as reported to Mark. Maybe we could even go so far as to say the gospel about Jesus Christ according to Peter as reported to Mark. So far in our story... Uh, Jesus has ministered 
primarily, primarily to God's covenant people or to the nation of Israel, which included Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. If you wanted to be connected with God before Jesus, life, death, burial, resurrection, you had to connect with the nation of Israel, including circumcision, which was a sign of God's covenant with the people. You would, of course, be expected to keep the law. Or, as Sean so skillfully pointed out last week, the religious leader's interpretation of the law. It was layer upon layer upon layer that had been added. At first glance, it might look like, wow, they've made it so strict that nobody can keep it. But in fact, they they sort of manipulated the law to suit themselves. For instance, you, you know that tendency, don't you? You know that temptation. I can't believe somebody would do this. It's probably not one of the sins that you struggle with, you know, when you're saying, I, don't, I can't believe Steve Turnage would dare do that. Well, it just so happens that Jack Lucas has a different problem than Steve. And Jack might, Steve might be saying, well, Jack, I don't get you doing this. So, Get the moat out of your own eye before you see a speck in another's eye. Uh, Jesus riled the leaders, the religious leaders, when he called their interpretations and practices of the law both perverted and far from the heart of God. He said, the way you're practicing the law has nothing with the way it was intended. They were all show, Jesus said, no substance. You may look pretty good on the outside, but on the inside, uh, you're you're like a tomb that's all whitewashed outwardly and yet filthy, full of dead man's bones on the inside. Jesus proclaimed the eminence of God's kingdom, but found only hard hearts who opposed him, both among the leaders and the masses of the people. Now, the masses followed Jesus. The poor in the land of Israel loved what he was saying, what he was doing. Well, really, they they were probably loving the miracles. They were loving the idea that Jesus can heal this this issue that I have, this physiological, physical issue that I have. And also, now he's going to feeding people with with almost nothing. So I'm going to follow him. And so Jesus confronted the masses, and most of them walked away. And after yet another confrontation that we read about last week with the religious leaders, the Pharisees in Galilee, today's text finds Jesus trying to find some rest. He just wants to go where nobody knows him. You ever felt like that? You know, you, just, you want to go where nobody knows you. So he goes to the, to the Gentile lands north of Israel into Tyre and Sidon, and surely he's going to get some rest there. I mean, away from the people of Israel. Well, no, actually, he doesn't get rest. Apparently, the, the people of Tyre and Sidon were just as desperate as many of the people in Israel. Unfortunately, the Savior was just as compassionate in Gentile lands as he was in Israel. After some time in in, in the Gentile territory, Jesus returned to Galilee and continued his compassionate healing. But remember, Jesus' miracles were often intended to affirm the message, well, always intended to affirm the message that he preached. So there's more going on than just physical healing, more just the faith that Jesus can heal me. There's a spiritual component that we dare not miss. Our text is Mark 7, verses 24 to 37. If you would please stand as I read God's word for us. And from there he arose and went away into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, <coughs> excuse me, he put his fingers into his ear, ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Father, we concur, we agree with our whole hearts that Jesus has done all things well. Our eyes have been opened to the truth of the word. Our ears have been opened to the proclamation of the gospel. You have caused us to believe. And in Jesus, we have life. We have healing. So as we examine your word today, examine our hearts, Holy Spirit. Change us, make us into the people that you have called us to be through your life-giving word. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. This is the first time that we see Jesus interacting with a pagan Gentile. I mean, to this point, all the Gentiles that Jesus has helped have been those who have converted to Judaism. You may recall in Luke 7, where a centurion sent Men to Jesus who said, please help this man. He has a sick servant. Please heal him. And and interestingly, they said, and Jesus, you should do this. This man is worthy. He has helped us. He helped build a synagogue. So please help him. Well, in today's text, the Gentile woman that approaches Jesus, that approaches Jesus is absolutely nothing like the, the, the Gentile centurion who built a synagogue. She's pagan. Now, if you read long enough, you're going to find in, 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 the, in the Scripture, in the New Testament, you're going to find that the Gentiles are a big part of God's plan, and, and we're grateful for that, aren't we? I mean, my goodness, if it weren't for Jesus, God's people would consist of a very small group of Jews and those who had converted to Judaism around the world. But God has opened his heart and opened his arms to receive us. We're a big part of his plan, but it wasn't so at this point. Just was jumping the gun, so to speak. Gentiles were the quintessential unreached people groups. We're going to be people group. We're going to be talking about people groups that have not been reached with the gospel of Christ in our study of missions in these next uh, several weeks. Now, we already know the result of this encounter. The woman's daughter is healed. But there there are quite a few questions that this account raises. Did you have some questions pop into your mind as we were reading it deliberately? It really makes a difference, doesn't it, when you're reading Scripture to read it deliberately, slowly. Now, if you're going to get through the Bible in a year, you're probably not going to do it. But if you're just reading the text, maybe you're reading, having devotions and you're going to read a paragraph of Scripture, maybe even a chapter, perhaps you ought to think about reading it out loud, slowly. Put emphasis where you think the writer would have put the emphasis. So I don't know if any questions uh, popped into your mind, but, but here's a question. Was this 
a strategic encounter between Jesus and this woman, or was it serendipitous? In other words, it was just one, one of those fortunate meetings. Uh, Lee Williford and I just ran into each other in North Raleigh in a restaurant the other day. That was serendipitous. I mean, we were both in a terrible mood, and it just brightened our day. You know, we, we walked away from there thinking, ah, I feel better now. That was really a, a great meet. So was this one of those, you know, wow, this, you know, who would have ever expected? This is awesome that this happened. <laughs> I mean, Jesus had done his best to get away from people, right? He was trying to be alone. He didn't want anyone to know it. And yet, this woman showed up. Well, the answer to that question is about destiny or chance. Everything that happens to us is in one way or another God's will. Everything. He is sovereign over all things, so no plan of God was changed by this encounter. It's not like God said, hey, look at this. Woo, let's do something here. Even so, it had the feel of a chance meeting. Jesus' reputation had preceded him, and this woman found him. And according to the Greek, she kept on begging him to heal her daughter. It's one of those, you know, please, please, I need you to heal my daughter, please. Jesus said to the woman in so many words, you're not in the script. In fact, you're a Canaanite woman, and, and, and if you'll recall, my people, the Jews, were supposed to wipe your race off the face of the earth. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not right for me to give the bread designated for the chil- children to the dogs. Now, the title of this message is Desperate People, Compassionate Savior. We see the desperate woman in this text, right? Where's the compassionate Savior? I mean, Jesus has called this woman a dog. But but really, is it worse than what he's called the religious leaders of Israel? Hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, snakes? How is this compassionate? The worst thing that can happen to you is to be fooled into thinking that because you are a relatively good person, you will surely be loved and accepted by a God, but just because you're so good. It's impossible for you to know the depths of God's love and mercy until you first come face to face and acknowledge the depth of your sinful condition before the Lord. Apart from that, we cannot know God. You may be a pretty good person on balance, but you do not measure up to the standard of a holy God. And it's merciful for him to tell you who you are apart from him. Jesus, I don't know. Look, I was thinking as we were singing, come behold the wondrous mystery. Where are you, David? Where's David Calvert? Um, Those words about a better Adam. What does it say? Do you recall off the top? You're on the spot. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Do you know what that means? I hope that if you don't know what it means, I'm not going to take the time to explain it, that you will find out. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about the last Adam. Paul talks about the last Adam. And and desire to find out what God is telling us about ourselves and about him. About the beauty of a relationship with him. And our only hope, your only hope of a relationship with God is a humble response to his declaration of who you are in your sin without Christ. The Syrophoenician woman was told that she was a dog. I mean, Jesus used a word that meant puppies, like the little family puppy. But look, 
it's still an insult any way you look at it. And, it, and, and this was really a comment of indifference when you think about it. You know, the, the opposite of, of love is not hatred. It's indifference. It's like, yeah, I don't care. You know, I mean, and think about what he's saying. He's say, essentially Jesus is saying, listen, lady, I don't care about your daughter. Are you a Jew? Oh, no, that's right, you're not. Go away. You're a Gentile dog. But she wouldn't go away. Her response was priceless, and Jesus said as much. Yes, Lord, but even the little puppies get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I love the way Tim Keller just thinks about Scripture and he, knowing the rabbis of the day, he says that Jesus' answer as a rabbi here and in Matthew 15 where this story is told would, would be to look around and to say, such an answer, such an answer, a beautiful, amazing answer. And then he commended her for her faith and told her to go, that her daughter had been healed. And in faith she left and she went home and found her daughter healed and the demon gone. Although this encounter involves exorcism, the gospel is all through the story. Do you see it? Clearly there's more to the, than faith for healing that is going on in this account Uh, In Matthew's account, the woman addresses Jesus as Lord, Son of David, or essentially she's saying Jesus, Messiah, just like we, we sang about this morning, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Messiah, help me, have mercy on me. She's a pagan Gentile. The Messiah was for God's people. She's crying out in desperate need. She knew and she believed even though she was this pagan Gentile, that Jesus was sent from God. And she was desperate for him, insults or not. Jesus' declaration of her status was the kindest thing that he could have said. She received his assessment and she said, Lord, you're right, I'm a dog. But even... The dogs get the crumbs, and I desperately need you. Give me these crumbs, please. And at that moment, this woman became a member of God's family, and not in the ways that anybody understood salvation in that day. Uh, Jews understood salvation in particular ways. You go through rituals, you know, you... you, you line up, you prove yourself, all of the We've got our own rituals. Now, if you would, were forced to say, this is what I believe is necessary for salvation, what would you say? What elements would you consider to be vital? I would say there are two, repentance and faith. Although baptism and communion are so closely related that they seem inseparable. But repentance and faith bind us to God. Many Christians have a a formula that they want to employ when they're telling other people how to place his or her trust in Christ, when they're telling another person how to place his or her trust in Christ. Maybe it's a prayer. Uh, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I deserve to be apart from you in hell for eternity. I acknowledge my sin before you. I believe that Jesus died for me. And I place my trust in him. Look, look, I've many times at the end of a message said, if you don't know Jesus and you want to be related to him, pray something like this in your heart. And that's almost identically what I would pray. It's easy for something like that, for our presentation of the gospel to be almost as ritualistic as the Jews were about communicating the law. Now tell me, when you got saved, you don't ever remember a time when you weren't saved? I I think that's a problem. You need to be born again. Let's pray this prayer. 
well, I prayed the prayer, but I, I just don't have that peace in my heart. Well, the Holy Spirit will give you peace. I think you need to pray that prayer again. I mean, we, we have all these ideas about who's in and who's out. Now, <clears throat> Jesus said, apart from me, there is no salvation. But the ways we come to Jesus often are different from one another. I mean, it's important to know that a formula can be followed, and people do come. In fact, a lot of you came to Christ following some prayer. Perhaps you were at a Billy Graham crusade, and you came forward in the service. Not as good as I had hoped, but, you know. Actually, I didn't plan on it. It it just came over me, kind of like that woman's daughter, you know. (laughs) The demon came over her, so... This formula that we use for telling people about Jesus is really relatively a new formula. Although 16 centuries ago, Augustine gave us a sense of what a conversion experience looks and feels like. But now we have a conversion experience down to such a science that it has to be a particular way. Tell me, what tells me that this woman was repentant? In this text, I mean, do you see the word repentance? You see the word believe, you see the word faith. But do you see repentance in this text? Well, she fully accepted Jesus' assessment of her and she begged for mercy. And in so doing, she acknowledged her faith in Christ. Her daughter was healed and she was saved. And if you have repented of your sin, and you have trusted Christ as your only hope of heaven, if you said, I believe that Jesus died in my place, God sent him for me, then you too are saved. You might not have said exactly those words, but maybe it was something like, Lord, help me, please help me, save me. But those words indicate a repentance. Look at the Philippian jailer. When he came to, 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 to Paul and said, Paul and Silas, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He didn't have to talk about repentance. Why? The guy knew his condition. He was desperate. He fell down. Help me to be saved. We don't really come to Christ until we have this recognition of our need. Now, it could be that all the way through your life, this is what you have been told, and you can't remember a time. But here's the point. What do you believe? Do you believe that you have any hope apart from Jesus Christ? If the answer is no, and if you say, and I, my only hope is Jesus, and I put my trust in Him, then according to 1 John 5, 1, you are saved. The one who is believing that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Quit worrying about the time or the exact process that you went through salvation look let's not co-opt it god tells us a lot about it but it doesn't always happen the way some people come to grace and they say no invitation i'm out of here do you know when the invitation came about middle early to the to middle of the 19th century that's it i don't know how people got saved before the invitation But they did somehow. Maybe it was, you know, God knew that there would be an invitation. And so he saved people. If you belong to Jesus, you will live a lifetime of repentance and belief. Remember, the gospel story is not like this. It's like this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You will live a lifetime of repentance and belief and faith. And and your repentance, genuine repentance says, I acknowledge who I am in that sin that I've committed. I never want to do that again. Save me, Jesus, I'm yours. Martin Luther said it over and over in his life. It's a good word, even if you know without any shadow of doubt that you're 
faith is in Christ and you're going to heaven. Still, that life of repentance and faith, it's not that you do it to stay saved or to get saved again. That's not the point. But the point is all of life is lived out. The gospel needs to be lived out in all of our lives, all life long. Jesus secures your salvation. And your continuing struggle with yourself, with the first Adam who lives in you, reminds you that you are helpless without the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus. And you're not all that, and in fact, you are helpless without Jesus. So when you repent... The good news is, even in your struggle, sooner or later you're going to realize how hopeless you are without Him. And whether you're a believer or not, when you do, you understand what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in 725 was saying, that Jesus saves and He saves to the uttermost. What does that mean? I'm, I'm not sure the, the, the full breadth of that, but I think we all get a sense. When Jesus saves to the uttermost, He does it all the way. Our efforts are painfully and woefully short often. This news is too good to keep to ourselves, wouldn't you say? I mean, we we need to share it with everyone who doesn't know Jesus. You're going to be shocked to know how many people have never heard the gospel as we go through this study on missions. And it's it's, it's a relatively short one. It's not like we're asking you to commit... Uh, Saturday morning, 9 o'clock for the rest of your life. It's just, you know, five, six sessions max. And then uh, those who choose to serve on a missions team will meet periodically once a month and, and, and make sure that we're doing our part as a church or to help us to make sure, to partner with the elders, to, to, to make sure that we are on mission we get a sense of what that mission is like as we follow Jesus from Tyre and Sidon around the Sea of Galilee into the region of Decapolis. And he goes uh, back into the land of Israel and heals what probably almost certainly was a Jewish man. Now, once again, this story toward the end of, of Mark 7 is a story about a desperate man being healed but a, by a compassionate Savior, But Jesus' method of dealing with this man, uh, who could neither speak nor um, hear, indicates a deeper healing than just the physical. And Kent Hughes offers us a helpful outline of what occurred here and, and how we should share Jesus with others. First, there was Jesus' look. In verse 34, Mark tells us that Jesus looked up to the heaven. What was happening here? I mean, what was Jesus doing? Was he gathering strength? Well, he was. But he was praying to his Father. Jesus was always in prayer, whether he was alone or not. We see times where he went away and he spent the night in prayer. But Jesus was constantly looking to the Father. He was praying. It's a good word, isn't it, for those of us who are so busy in life, and especially when ministry comes into the play, and I'm not just talking about full-time Christian workers. Many of you are very busy in ministry. No matter how busy Jesus was, he looked to the Father for wisdom and power to serve others. I've mentioned several times that prayer is a difficult discipline for me. Does that excuse me for my Little prayer, not lack of prayer, but my little prayer. No, it doesn't. I I have been challenged. And by the way, this book that we're reading is just such an awesome help in your prayer life. It reminds you that prayer is, once again, not formulaic. Although, yes, there are helps. There are ways that we can say, all right, pray like this. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, you know, acts, formula for prayer. Um, but prayer is just intended to be ongoing 
communion in the relationship of uh, in relationship with God in his presence you ever Allison and I uh met what four years ago almost or close to five I can't remember anymore it's my my mind is going sweetheart it's not that that date it's October 7th I know that 2009 so you figure out the math almost five years ago and one of the things that so indicated to me that perhaps God was moving in that very first meeting, we went to Chili's and we ate lunch, was that there was a little small period of silence and we were both comfortable with it. Understand what I'm saying? You, if you're on a trip with someone that you don't know all that well, there's almost always this need to to feel like you're communicating, you know, and it feels awkward if they're silenced. Well, look, when you really love someone, it's okay to be silent. You, you men can thank me, husbands can thank me after after the service. I talk as much as she does, so I'm not really a good example, but... Um, you know, it's okay to be silent, and it's okay to just be in the presence of the Lord. But you're, you know what? Even though you may be doing different things, you're always aware, aren't you, of your loved one's presence. And that's kind of what, what this ongoing prayer needs to be like. We're always aware. And, and I've been challenged to do this through different people, through the Holy Spirit working in my heart. And I'm praying a lot more than I used to. I'm just praying whenever I think about it. Lord, turn this into a prayer. And this will be a lifelong struggle for an ADHD kind of personality. But it's okay. Before we share Christ, while we share Christ, after we have shared Christ, we need to pray. After all, it's not our clever words that brings about Salvation, is it? It's God, only God who can move a person's heart. The better we are at communicating the gospel, the more tempted we may be not to pray. May it never be. The more we know Jesus, the more we ought to pray. So there's Jesus looked, but then there's also Jesus sigh. He looked up to the heavens and he sighed. Now, this is not a, a, a sigh of weariness. He's not saying, Really? I have to do this? Oh, my God. Now, you have that sigh sometimes, don't you? And that's typically where you're looking to, to the heavens. <sighs> okay. That's not what this was at, was at all. Jesus was always moved by the needs of others. His heart almost always caused him to work work much longer than he needed to or that he wanted to, healing people and feeding them when they were hungry. And we see him, he's always moved by the effects of sin. When one of the only Bible verses that some of you know is is John 11, 35, Jesus wept. You know, because when we used to have competitions at camp and you could memorize X number of verses, everybody had... John eleven thirty five in the pocket. Jesus wept. Well, there's a lot more going on than, than, than we see in the English. Jesus was crying out in anger, actually. It's not like he was... <laughs> he was... <laughs> he was compassionate and he hated what sin had done to, to the world and death that came as a result of sin. He was moved to lament over Jerusalem he, he called these religious leaders snakes and whitewashed tombs, and he went out and he cried and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself, but you would not. His heart was moved even for the people that rejected him. Once he had created and called the people of God. I confess that it's easy to become hardened to others' needs when you've seen so much suffering. 
or when you've seen people who pretend to be in need but who really want to take advantage of your naivete than to tap into your generous spirit. Furthermore, it's easy to be defensive when people reject our message rather than grieve over the lost condition of those without Jesus. I mean, I hope your heart was moved this morning as Mike spoke about people that have never heard. People that will not know Romans 10 unless we go. But isn't God sovereign? Yes, he is. It is also true that they will not hear if we don't go. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall the preacher go unless he's sent? Faith comes by hearing the hearing by the word of God. We talked about this in Grace Connection this morning. By the way, if you missed Grace Connection this morning, you can get in next week, 9 o'clock. No more absences after that. You're, you know, you have to wait till the next go around, which is two, three months away. But if you would like to be in Grace Connection class, talk with a couple of us after the service, and we'll make sure that you get in. So Jesus' sigh was a sigh of compassion, but he didn't just stop there. Third and last, there was Jesus' touch. Now, it may not be all that appealing that Jesus to you, that Jesus spit on his fingers and then, you know, he put his fingers in the man's ear, he spit on his fingers and touched his tongue. You're probably thinking, it meant the world to this man. The fact that Jesus took him to a private place was already compassionate. compassionate. This man was a spectacle He probably made noises. People made jokes about him. So Jesus didn't do this publicly. He took him to a private place. Most people wanted to ignore him unless they were laughing. And in fact, they would want to avoid touching him if at all possible. Not Jesus. Just think about the leper that Jesus touched the law, required the leper to walk away from everyone else and say, unclean, unclean. (laughs) Jesus would walk right up to them and touch them. Demon-possessed men and women, those who had been damaged in the eyes of many. Jesus' touch would have probably meant as much to them as the healing itself. In touching them, he identified with their brokenness. Everything about Jesus' ministry to us was incarnational. And we're called to go in the same kinds of ways. Who have you been avoiding lately? Someone who has a need that makes you uncomfortable? Someone who needs Jesus but intimidates you? When you identify with people's brokenness without embarrassing them, you're extending to them the touch of Jesus, whether you win them to Christ or not. Now, look, it may be difficult for you to reach out to neighbors or co-workers or family members, but what about those who visit grace? What about those who come into this very room? We have first-time visitors Almost every week. I mean, look, staff will say, yeah, we had at least three families that had never been before. And I'm saying, you're kidding. I mean, I was up there. I look at you. You you look familiar, you know. I, I know you. I know some of the elders here. I know them, I think. But they say, no, no, we had three families that had never been here before. I mean, Some of you remember the first time that you came to Grace and you felt like this was home. I'm going to guess it. That's a lot of you. Like you came in here and you said, wow, this is home. Occasionally, though, that's not the experience that a guest receives. Can I ask you a question? How long has it been since you initiated contact with someone here at Grace that you do not know? 
I mean, many of the folks who are visiting here are here because they're looking for a church. They check us out on the web and they say, you know what, this is exactly what I'm looking for or this is the closest thing in this area that I'm looking for. I think I'll go give it a try or maybe it's one of, one of many. But, but what if others are coming in here because their worlds are falling apart since the husband lost his job? Or maybe they've, they've lost a child. Or maybe their marriage is on the brink. And just maybe, just maybe, we can go to church and find hope there. Wouldn't it be awful if someone came to grace and no one spoke to them? Or if they felt as though they had stumbled into a club and they just didn't belong. As friendly as this place is, it is possible, you know. We need that reminder from time to time. So here's your reminder. Make sure that you're doing your part to welcome visitors. Here are a couple of suggestions. Look for new people in the lobby, but especially in the sanctuary. New people... Brand new people often follow this pattern. They'll get here 10 to 15 minutes early and they'll come into the sanctuary and they'll sit by themselves somewhere. If there are other people already sitting, which is highly doubtful, 10 or 15 minutes early. They come in. I'm always worried when people come in 15 minutes early if they're going to find a seat. If If they don't get here any sooner than that. Actually, they probably think, did I, did, did I get the time right? I mean, is this the right day, actually? Maybe there's just enough activity going on to let us know that this is a church, but where is everybody? So you can spot new people. They're sitting alone in the sanctuary. Or they may come in a little bit late, you know, because they, they, they don't want. Not everybody wants to be smothered, but almost everybody wants to feel at least welcome. I went to a very well-known gospel preaching church one time. I was looking for someone that I knew attended there. Several services, 15 minutes early, 15 minutes late, people coming and going, nobody, nobody spoke to me. I remembered it. I remembered it very distinctly. When you find somebody new, ask them, who they are, get a little bit of information about them, ask them why they came to grace. Is there anything, tell them a little bit about you. Is there anything that, that you want to know about grace? Any questions I can answer? Look, there are all kinds of reasons people come, but I want to challenge you to be an unofficial greeter. We've got a greeting team, but it's not nearly large enough. Every one of us needs to be on that team, whether we're officially on it or not. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I could say, everyone who will commit to this, please stand up. not going to do that. Um, but I wonder if you would just commit in your heart and mind. I, I'm going to get here a little bit early so I can, I can meet some people. Also, here's another way. During the greeting time and after the service, make a commitment to speak with someone that you don't know before you speak with someone you do. Now, don't do that so that the other person thinks, ah, wow, what's up with him today? You know, don't say, hey, I can't talk to you. I've got to go over here. Part of the reason that we gather is is that we can commune with one another. I'm not saying we need to forget about one another. Uh, Being the family of God is a high priority for us as we gather. I'm sure that some of you are going to look around and say, "I I know everyone close by me. But always check to make sure. And, and here's another suggestion. Maybe one of the reasons you know everybody around you, you sit in the same place. Everybody sits in the same place. And visitors just kind of find where they can. So maybe you should move around, you know, from time to time. Um, okay, I know that's a sacred cow. You've got your seat. <clears throat> We're thinking about putting a plaque on your seat, in fact. And say, visitors not welcome. Look, I understand. I was talking with Allison about this. She said, so where are we going to sit tomorrow? I said, I want to sit where we normally sit. You know, <laughs> right down there. But we, we just prayed. We talked about where the most heathens in the church. And we decided to sit right over here. So, uh, <laughs> Not you, Karen Turner. Not you, Rick Palmer. But check around you and you'll see what I'm talking about. 
you know what? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about where you sit. In reaching out to new people, you know what's happening? Jesus is touching them. Don't spit and touch. But that's that compassion is being communicated. Now, this may seem like an abrupt transition to say that we are now going to move to the Lord's table and take communion as we always do on the first Sunday of the month. But it's not really. I mean, the reason that we come to this table is that we have been brought into the family of God by Jesus' sacrifice, by his death on the cross and our common affirmation of his death as payment for our sins. It could be that you're here for the very first time or maybe the second or third time. Listen, if you have have repented of your sin, whatever that looked like, if you have trusted Jesus, if you say my only hope of heaven is Jesus, not my good works, not my church membership, as important as those things are, but my hope is in Jesus, then we invite you to come to this table. We will be coming forward as we have done lately, down those rows and then back up the middle or there will be ushers to help you. Either the sides go back out the sides or the middle. Don't come down this row. There will be ushers to let you know when you come. And if you don't acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and you don't want to be a hypocrite, look, the Scripture says this is very important. You need to be serious about this. Then if that's the case, it's okay for you to come and just not partake. And it's okay. We're not looking at you saying, mm-hmm, there's one right there. We're not looking at like that at all. We want this to be a special time for the family of God. So uh, participate with us in this communion. And, 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 and listen, it, it could be that if you're checking us out, God may say, this is the place for you to be. It may not at all. You may, the Lord may send you somewhere else. And you know what? We want you to be where God wants you to be. It's not that we don't want you. We want you where God wants you to be. And we do want you, if this is where God wants you to be, to come in. And we, we need to open our arms, Grace Community Church, and our hearts wide. You know what it was like when you have one child and <clears throat> you thought about another one? Some of you, anyway, said, how could I ever have enough love for... It's amazing, isn't it, how the Lord just expands that? Let's expand our hearts, open our hearts to those join us. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Moneypenny, one of the elders here at Grace. And I was reading what uh, Paul had to say about the uh, mystery of the of Israel's salvation and the way that the Gentiles were grafted in. And from Romans chapter 11. For God has consigned all to disobedience, and he, that he may mercy have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For through him, from him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Share the word.